This week's episode of the Nerdist Writers Panel is brought to you by T-Fury. T-Fury is the original pop culture t-shirt destination, selling unique designs every day since 2008. You can snag their shirts for only 24 hours, starting at midnight each day. Missing a shirt from the past and want to get it again? Head to the T-Fury Gallery, where you can buy some old designs still in print and vote on others to come back from the dead. Every two to four weeks, T-Fury adds more designs to their gallery, so be sure to keep an eye out for the return of your favorite shirts. But you should really just buy them the first time around. So visit T-Fury every day and then get a shirt because it's gone after 24 hours. T-Fury shirts cover all of your favorite topics and fandoms. They've got everything from gaming, sci-fi, anime, TV, movies, pop culture, and more. Their t-shirts change daily, so check back as often as you'd like. Daily. Also, don't forget about the T-Fury After Hours sale. If you miss the day's shirt by only a little, they keep the sale going into the wee hours of the morning just for you. Check out tfury.com slash nerdist and see what today's shirt is all about. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel. This is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. Thanks for listening. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. Uh, I myself am a TV writer. I've written for the shows Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working on a DreamWorks animated program, which I will tell you more about when I'm allowed to, but it's a lot of fun. I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on the Nerdist Network, monthly at Largo, and touring all over the country uh, in 2014. Find out more at thrillingadventurehour.com. One of my favorite writers and one of your favorite writers, Wonderfalls, Dead Like Me, Pushing Daisy, Hannibal, please welcome Brian Fuller. Everybody, thank you for coming. How nice! Thank you for being here, Brian. My pleasure. Yeah, it's a hot crowd. It's a great crowd. Thank you so much for coming out on a Sunday. How many writers are here? By round of applause. By round of applause. Right. Yeah, a good a good number of writers. So this is your chance. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Help form their minds. We, we, we need support and enthusiasm in the writing community. <laughs> Let me ask you this. I usually uh, wait till you're very comfortable, till the guest is very comfortable to get it into this question. should have been vodka, if that's the case. <laughs> um, do you enjoy writing? Do you enjoy the process of writing? Well, I think the adage is, like, I enjoy having written, mm-hmm. but the process is, uh, you know, just despair. Because <laughs> you're... What? What does your process look like? How, like when you are actually on a script? Because I know you've got all this other producing stuff to do. But when you're actually writing a, a script, what does the process look like for you? Uh, well, it's it, it gets pretty chaotic when we're in production because that's when it's it's actually as a writer, it's more fun to be working on someone else's show because you don't have the responsibility of bringing it to life and make sure 
that all the I's are crossed and the T's are dotted. So it's, it is so much easier to write for somebody else's show. I had a ball on Heroes because all I had to do was write, and it was so much fun. But when you're, you're writing for yourself, especially in the throes of production, it's usually the day is you start in meetings and you're going to meetings until 7 or 8, and if you're in post, even until midnight. And then I'll come home, take a half hour nap, and then write till five in the morning, and then start it again. So it's, it's, uh, it's being a showrunner is the stupidest job. <laughs> what, what was your first opportunity as showrunner? Uh, well, I guess you know, for Dead Like Me, they, they since it was the first time I had created a show, it was really about uh, getting um, somebody to help supervise me. And so, but it's still like the pressure, and I'm I'm kind of uh, meticulous, and so, and I also am very visually oriented. So I want to make sure what we're writing is actually as cinematic as possible. So we get to have uh, that extra level of storytelling because I think cinema and is is more important oftentimes than dialogue because what we feel is not articulated in words. It's articulated in impressions. And so I think the cinema is as important as the dialogue. What do your scripts look like? Are they... Are, is there, like, they tell us not to direct on the page, but are That's you... That's bullshit. <laughs> direct on the page. Like? Um, How does that work? I write in camera movements. Camera finds this. Camera reels this. Camera pulls out of that. Camera goes here. Camera goes there. Because uh, I think you, you have to communicate that stuff, particularly in television when you are... There's with directors coming through. It's, it's often they are coming through, feeling that they are traffic cops, and they're just kind of saying, "Go here, go there," and, and the direction of it is is less as important as the feeling and the emotion of it. Uh, so, oftentimes, just to director proof it, you are putting in exactly what you want to see and exactly where you're going to go, and then it gives the director a, a template to be able to say. Uh, I can do what you want, but I can do it better this way. And you're like, excellent, do that. Like, elevate. Because you always want to elevate. You want everybody involved to elevate. Because as the writers in this room know, you write something and you know there is a better idea out there. You just haven't found it yet, and it'll drive you crazy. (laughs) So you're looking for your actors to bring it and your director to bring things that you didn't anticipate. But that's, that's the great thing about working on Hannibal is that we have... Maz Mickelson and Hugh Dancy and Lawrence Fishburne, who are all incredible and so enthusiastic about their roles because we're not, nobody really has ownership of Hannibal because it's Thomas Harris's and we all just get to play in his sandbox. And so it's very collaborative. It's much more collaborative. And I'm much more collaborative on Hannibal than I would be with, say, Pushing Daisies, because I'd be like, no, Ned wouldn't do that. Whereas, <laughs> And you're the only one who knows. Right, right, yeah. exactly. So I have it's that, and then, and then Hugh will be like, what about this? And I'm like, oh, that's a really good idea. Let's do that instead. So um, the collaboration on Hannibal has been really unique because everybody is so enthusiastic, and he's, you know, one of the most iconic pop culture villains in the world. So I think he beat out Darth Vader a couple years ago, which was crazy to me. Yeah, it's like, that's, that's not right. 
exactly like Darth Vader has a lot on him. On that very important list, which is set yes. in stone. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Moses had it. Right. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me, um, you know, when, when last we talked, it was back at Largo for our big uh, 100th anniversary episode. Yeah, that podcast is available. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, Hannibal was created basically out of one small idea in Red Dragon, in Thomas Harris's Red Dragon. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And I'm curious about pulling that idea out and, and spinning it into years' worth of story. Well, the, there's like a page and a half in uh, Red Dragon where it talks about how... First, it, it kind of started with Lecter saying to Will Graham, you caught me because you're as crazy as I am, essentially. And so... Uh, that kind of implied an intimacy to their relationship, a bromance that I thought, you know, well, let's explore this. Let's see where it goes. And as, as, a, as a gay guy, I'm fascinated with how straight men play and how straight men love each other. So I'm like... There, uh, there's nothing straight yeah. about Will and Hannibal. I have to no, tell you. No, no. As I've seen by Tumblr, which is amazing. Like all, like it's like God bless all of you for that. I think it's fantastic. Uh, so I was I was fascinated with how, you know, I'm the youngest of five, and so I had older brothers, and I was always fascinated. I was just like, I just don't like you're alien. I don't get how you you work, and so I. Was, was inspired by that. And, and also I think it's probably better for gay culture that they're straight because they're doing such fucked up shit to each other that I'm like, we got, like, we got enough issues. Like, be, like, like take, the, take the baton. So, so tell me about, um, were you approached by NBC uh, with this idea of doing a Hannibal TV show or did you bring it to them? Um, I was on an airplane, and I had just finished writing a script, and so I was like, I'm going to go to New York and see a bunch of plays and theater, because, you know, of course. And uh, so uh, sitting on the plane, like one row ahead of me, was a friend of mine who just became the president of Galmont Television, and she was like, do you think there's a show in Hannibal? And I was like, do you have the rights to Will Graham? And she's like... (laughs) think so. I was like, well, if you do, this is how you would do it. So you had thought about this before. No, I just was like, I was, I was protective of the, the... Maybe it's because I saw the Brett Ratner movie. And I was like, this can be... like We need to get back to basics and, and, and do something a different way to this character because I think he sort of became less special. And there was also the coolest part of his life was when he was a practicing psychiatrist and a practicing cannibal, which hadn't been adapted in any of the movies or any of the work. So I was like, there's this whole chapter that nobody has seen before. So why not embrace that and explore that and make that the show? And when I first met, they were like, we want to do Hannibal Rising, the TV show. I was like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. that." Uh, was there? Tell me about how this sort of started to form for you. Then, I mean, you knew this relationship would be at the core of it, um, and you knew. Uh, I guess in in Red Dragon there had been the Shrike conversation. Right. This was the thing that had sent Will Graham off the rails. Um, but you know, that's that's not a ton of fodder for jumping into a multi-season TV show. No, but what was was kind of. We're, we're doing these strange echoes of the book. So, you know, the first season was kind of an echo of Red Dragon. And this second season is, is, is almost an echo of Silence of the Lambs with everything inverted. 
and the third season is like an echo of, of Hannibal if we get to a third season. And you guys, get yeah, it there. Watch it, spread get the word. Spread get the on word. your Tumblrs, get on your Twitters. Yes, gotcha. tweet away. Um, so it was really about, okay, what are the three lost chapters of the story that we haven't seen? So like the first three seasons would really be lost novels. Of, of that we hadn't seen before. And then, you know, just the anticipation of building up to get to Red Dragon, which as hallucinogenic as Will Graham's journey has been, Francis Dollarhide is even more <laughs> traumatic. So being able to tell that story cinematically with how he sees the dragon and how that gets inside of his head, seeing what it would be like for Reva, as a, who I think is a fascinating character, uh, what that's like to tell a story cinematically from a blind person's point of view, all those things are very exciting. So it was like, that's the treat at the end of the road. And so so I knew that if we build this road and we, we start paving it very nicely, then then when we get there, we get to do a different version of Red Dragon that nobody has seen before because the book is so detailed that there's no way you can capture that in a 90 to two-hour movie, so uh, 90 minute to two hour. And so I thought, well, let's just start laying pipe. That's really, and I'm now I'm, it has to go. We have to do it. Yes. Guys, <laughs> please. I'm worried. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about, if you would, um, about uh, the, the challenges in Hannibal. We had talked about, when we talked before, we talked about the candy of the show which is getting to act out these uh, impulses, these horrible impulses that we would never do to other people. But what are some of the challenges uh, involved, not just in production, but in the actual writing of these characters? Well, it's, it's a very... You know, the first season was really challenging and really um, sort of psychologically traumatic for me to just get to, to live in that headspace for you know, seven months away from family and friends in Toronto... You know, fighting battles to make sure that we are making the most excellent show that we possibly can with the money that we have. And we have, you know, our show is not a big budgeted show. We have probably a million dollars less per episode than the average network show. Like, we're, we're very... You would never know. We, are, we, we produce it very smartly. And, and if you look at the show, uh, there's a lot of, like, two-page scenes where two characters are talking, and that allows us to shoot that economically and efficiently, which will buy the visual effects. So, and our scripts are relatively short. Like, the Pushing Daisy scripts were 58 pages to 63 pages because the dialogue was so rat-a-tat-tat. And with Hannibal, it's so moody, so it's like a two-page scene is like three and a half minutes of screen time. And, you know, we just have to trim it up and pace it up. So it, it is that, that aspect of the show that being in a psychological point of view, writing a character that's losing his mind, feeling like I'm losing my mind, as every writer knows, you like, you're, the shining is, is a, a very accurate representation of what it is to be a writer. And so, that was the, that was the hardest part, honestly, because I was it, like, it, it's a ton of work, it's just a, an oppressive amount of work, and Pushing Daisies was designed to be chock full of things that made me happy, dogs and pie, (laughs) saltwater taffy and zombies, and so all these things that give me glee, and then pushing daisies on the, or Hannibal on the other hand, is is, is some dark, dark shit. (laughs) Talk to me about that for a minute. I mean, it's interesting looking at 
pushing daisies. And I mean, there's all, there's darkness in the, the things that we know you as the author of. But you wouldn't necessarily seem the guy to do Hannibal. Um, if you've seen me in my moodiest, you wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> you know, there's... there's Your loved ones know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, like anybody who like knows the grumpy version is, is like, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> He need a face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Pushing Daisies, as long as you brought it up. We talked a little bit uh, when we last met about how uh, the, the sad ending of that show and kind of cobbling together put something satisfying for you and for the audience. And, uh, but tell me about the beginning of that show. Again, it's not a thing that seems an obvious pitch, uh, how did it? How did it even happen? Did you write it then pitch it? Did you pitch it cold? This was in the days when you could just pitch stuff. Yeah, well, it, it actually was the character of Ned was conceived as a spinoff to Dead Like Me because uh, George was somebody who touched people and took their souls away, and he was somebody who touched people and gave their souls back essentially, and so he was going to be the antithesis to everything she was and become like a romantic foil. And it's like, wait, I just like took that guy's soul and you give it back, you're messing with my job. <laughs> and so when I left Dead Like Me to go do Wonderfalls, I just put the idea in my back pocket. And it was something that was, was charted to be part of that first season of Dead Like Me. And then did Wonderfalls, and that didn't last nearly as long as, as I wanted it to. And so then I was like, okay, what are the ideas that I have next. And I sat down with Susan Rovner at Warner Brothers, who is one of the best executives in television. When everybody who is a writer becomes full for in their careers, seek out Susan Rovner. <laughs> let, me, let me interrupt you here, and I'm going to interrupt you a lot because I have many questions, but yeah. what makes for a good executive? Uh, of the relationships you've had with executives on your shows, what, are, what makes for the good ones? Um, you really want somebody who is... is doesn't fancy themselves as a creative because I think there's a danger now in some television where writers in television, you know, are generally, a, it's like, it's our medium. We, we sort of own the, the, the product and in film, you're a hired hand and it's all about what the director wants and, and, you know, your, your ideas are secondary if the director doesn't see it. I think that is a, is a, an element that's sort of sneaking into television where you have executives who fancy themselves as creatives or frustrated writers and they're saying like, no, you should do this with your idea. I'm like, no, why don't you do that with your idea? I'll, I'll, I'll keep pursuing my idea. Um, but you don't always have that luxury. So I think you really want somebody who is looking for the best way to champion your ideas to get the best out of you. And Susan was somebody who... Like, for instance, you know, in the early days of developing Pushing Daisies, I was like, she comes back to life, and she's vomiting formaldehyde because it's been, like, injected in, and they're like, we, like, no, no, no sneezing formaldehyde or anything like that. And then I was like, well, I guess she has to be Jewish because she wouldn't be embalmed or any of that stuff. And that's the reason the character was Jewish on the show, because they wouldn't let her pass formaldehyde in any way, shape, or form. So that was that was a way to help me sell it. Because if I went to like, and she pees formaldehyde, and they're like, well, pass, hard pass. So she was like, don't do that, do this. You know, this is a way to get what you want in your idea, but not but 
speak their language. So it's a translator. You want yeah. an executive who is a translator for the sales machine. That's a great way to put it. Um, so tell me a little more about doing this. So you, you came into Warner Brothers with this idea, um, and then did they help, you, they help you put together this pitch? Uh, and then did you kind of shop it around? Is that how it happened? You had to ship this, uh, pitch this a yeah, bunch we pitched of it. We pitched it everywhere, and it was um, it was actually surreal because the idea was so odd, and you know, I really I was obsessed with Amelie, and I wanted to do a version of Amelie that had zombies in it, and <laughs> so which we all thought that watching Amelie, <laughs> not enough zombies. Yeah, so. Um, the fortunate thing was it actually sold everywhere that we pitched it, with the exception of CBS, and, which, you know, bullet dodged. Because uh, you, know, you hear horror stories about the individual networks when you're, you know, so whenever a friend of yours sells a story to CBS, you're like, congratulations. Because um, you know they're going to go through hell to try to get their vision on the screen, because it's... it's CBS is great in that it knows its brand and it wants you to adapt to its brand as opposed to adapt to you. Um, so we sold it to ABC and they were as obsessed with Amelie as I was. So they were like, we want Amelie the TV show. And so I delivered the script um, and they were like, come in for a notes meeting. And there was like champagne and wine. They're like, we're like, we're going to do this. They were like so supportive <laughs> and excited. So it was... I haven't had that since and haven't had it before. So Nobody has had that. <laughs> no, no. Those days are over. Yeah. Thank you, writer Strike. What, what did that pitch look like? How um, long was it? Did you have visual aids? Well, there's one of the things that was great about Susan Rovner is that she had this how to pitch a drama. So it's like you, which is a little, I actually should, I'll send you the, the form so you can put it on the website for the writers. And it's a very simple way that helps pitching, which is start with your opening sequence and you just pitch the opening. And then you say, this is the character, this is the other character, this is how they, they get involved, this is their relationship to each other, this is how it ends, and here's a few episodes. Brevity is your friend. You don't want to wear out your welcome in a pitch. You don't want to hang out too long, give too many details. You want to get in, get out, and make them want more. So I'll send you that diagram so you can put it on the website because it's so useful in strategizing a pitch. Absolutely. It's the um, drama pitch outline. I'm, I'm so excited about getting that document. It's, it's <laughs> invaluable. I what I was it'll, ask. it'll help you focus your stories and know what to tell, what's important, and, and you don't get lost because it's so easy to get lost because yeah. you know, we are our ideas, and if they hate the idea, they hate you is the feeling. <laughs> and so it's, it's, you, know, you can psych yourself out, and it, pitching never gets easier. It's always very stressful. So it doesn't go away. Like, I was... Uh, chatting with Stephen Moffat's uh, partner today, who you know, Stephen Moffat, Doctor Who, and Sherlock is—they know. I think they know. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And he was—he was sweating in his hotel room because he was late on a script, and and like I don't know if it works and everything like that. I was just like, thank God, thank God, he's up there freaking out because that's how it feels. Uh, on a pitch like this, though, and this was before a lot of these sort of high concept shows were popping up when you could sell something based on the, the weird pilot you were going to make. Did you have to kind of talk about the mythology and get people to understand the hows and whys of this? I feel like that would be a big question. Well, that was one of the great things about Susan Rodner because she was like, break it down so it's simple. It's like one touch life, second touch death, like, and there's, there's no coming back for that. So just make it three simple rules, repeat them every episode for the first six episodes, 
and then you'll be fine. And that was the, the, the simplicity of he touches them once they come back to life, he touches them again, they go back to being dead, and they can never come back again. And the pitch was about, it's like, the, I went in with like several ideas, and for them I said, it's about a guy who can touch dead things and bring them back to life, but if he touches them again, they go back to being dead and they can never be alive again. He touches a girl, falls in love with her, and can never touch her again. And then they were like, sold. And I was like, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, so let's let's talk about. Uh, actually, I have one more question about that pitch. Um, do you remember the sample episodes that you talked about in that pitch? And we made every one of them. I, I would assume. I yeah. mean, it felt like there were a slew of incredibly strong episodes that had to have been there once you had the concept, like, oh, I can't wait to do this. Yeah, and it's, you know, the, the important thing as a writer is to know that you are not alone. Trust your friends who are writers. Pitch them the stories. They will give you ideas. It's collaborative. And, you know, every time I go to any sort of pitch, I will work with writer friends that will come over and help me break story and just to bounce ideas off. So don't try to go it alone. Rely on your friends that are also writers and creative. And if you trust them and you trust their opinions, that makes it so much easier because you can feel so alone as a writer because you're just in your head all the time. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, it is a collaborative medium at the end of the day. It absolutely is. Um, But how do you balance that with, you know, telling the story that's in your head as a showrunner? Um, Balance in what way? You know, you want you hire the best people you can right. in every aspect of production. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's still your vision that's coming across on the screen. Well, that's the the great thing about being able to pick the ideas that you like and best represent the story. So we, you know, we have uh, you get to cherry pick. It's like I think that works. That's exciting. I want to see that episode. And you always have to approach everything as if you're the first member of the audience because uh, if you're making a show that you wouldn't watch, you're doing it wrong. Like, you shouldn't ever be writing something that you don't want to see or pandering to what you expect someone else wants from you. If, you, if, you, if it's not in your soul and you don't want to see it, don't write it because you don't know what the audience wants. And you have to know what the audience wants, so you have to be a member of the audience first. And I think, you know, we, people come to TV because we love TV. You know, you don't, you don't say, I'm going to make a lot of money in this because it's too hard. Right, right. Uh, you're, you're not going to make it. And that way madness lies. <laughs> <laughs> um, we started talking about um, show running. And uh, when, when Dead Like Me, when you got Dead Like Me, uh, you were paired with a showrunner. Tell me what you learned in that, from that experience that you've kind of taken with you to uh, subsequent you know, I, there's there's so many more lessons that I haven't learned than the ones that I've learned. You know, but I think the 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 lesson with Dead Like Me, which wasn't necessarily um, you know a great learning experience, and because it was so fraught with all sorts of issues, because I was dealing with a a studio that. I would get in arguments with about Rebecca Gay Hart, who I loved and, and wanted to, to cast, and they were like, ah, she's not that attractive. And I was like, she's a supermodel. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, but how would you know? And I was like, really? <laughs> like, really? So like, it was that type of stuff. So I was like, sort of excited to leave Dead Like Me because it was, it was, it was a crazy environment. And then I went to do Wonderfalls with... Todd Holland, who was incredibly supportive and also a great creative partner, and we crafted that show together. And it was much... I learned more from Todd and doing uh, Wonderfalls, just in terms of 
the cleanliness of storytelling and how, you know, you can kitchen sink things very quickly and very easily because you're like, there's not enough ideas. It has to have more. It has to, you know, be chock full of philosophies and, and that sort of thing. And you can choke on it. Uh, but that doesn't say, like, whenever I'm reading a scene, if the scene doesn't have a central philosophy to it or a central idea to it, even just in the scene, then for me it doesn't work because I'm just like, why? What, what is changing me or enlightening me about this scene? Can you give us an example of that? Um, for instance, in, in, uh, in Hannibal, there, is, there was a, a scene where, in, in season two, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> Eddie Azard, who returns and is fantastic, uh, is talking to Will Graham about who he's becoming as a result of all of the trauma. And I was like, the scene is just informational. What is it about? And then I was, I was like, you know, it's sort of like, they settled on the idea of skin grafts. It's like when you take a skin graft, you, sometimes you reject it because it's not who you are fundamentally and so you can you can wear it and it'll work for a little bit but ultimately you will reject it if it's not who you are so I was like oh that's an idea that's an idea that I can build a scene around and it's something for them to talk about that feels like it is two people exploring a philosophy of life through metaphor and I love metaphors because it's like it's <laughs> metaphors are our friends uh, it prevents us from being direct <laughs> so uh, so that's the sort of thing that I look for and get excited by in a scene because I'm like oh they're there's a different angle to it because it's really easy to write things directly and informationally because you just sort of like spit it out, but then you give it to an actor and they're just going to spit it out too because there's no there there to feel. Is it difficult to find those metaphors for you or do they tend to come fairly easily? Oh, it's like I search, I, like I, I'll, I'll look through magazines, I'll look for just like what's an idea that gets me excited and find an idea, and then, like, how does that apply to these characters, and then manipulate the idea into their mouths. <laughs> uh, when you're on the moving train of a television show, though, there's not that kind of time to look through magazines. That's so it must I'm... be a continual process for you. Yeah, and that's why I'm up till 5 in the morning. <laughs> uh, how long do those drafts take, by the way? I mean, I imagine, you know, you've got a crack writing staff, but you're rewriting as well as the showrunner. Well, it's, you know, it depends on the shape of the script when I get it. And, you know, there, there are obviously going to be writers on the staff that are stronger than others. And so any, like... Left to my own devices, it takes me about three weeks to write a script like from scratch, from the blank page. If I'm rewriting somebody, it can take anywhere from five days to three weeks. <laughs> uh, let's talk, one, one of the jobs... I think you know what it's implied. <laughs> one of the jobs of the showrunner is hiring that staff, uh, and you've had some great ones. Uh, how do you put together your staffs? Is there stuff you look for? Is there material you tend to respond to over other... Um, you know, there's, I look for originality and I also, I look for, if you're writing a spec script, it's, you're already interpreting somebody else's voice and you're never going to do it as well because, you know, there's, there's a Judy Garland quote that I'm a big fan <laughs> of, which is you don't be the best, the second best version of somebody else, be the best version of yourself, which I think is, is something that we all should live uh, and follow. So, um, for instance, uh, there's a writer here who I've worked with several times named Kath Lingenfelter, 
and uh, who's fantastic, and she's on the new Damon Lindelof Leftover show, which is going to be great. And um, it is, I, I wanted to work with Kath because her spec script was about a guy who had pork chops for hands. <laughs> and it was just a, an intimate story about somebody who had pork chops for hands. It wasn't like campier or gamey as the, the meat would go. It was, it was just, he just happened to have pork chops for hands and wanted to be in a relationship with somebody who had meatloaf for feet. And I just thought it was brilliant because we all feel like we are fumbly and and have either like feet of meatloaf or clay or 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 pork chops for hands and i just thought here's a brilliant idea that i haven't seen explored before and so she brought originality and she also brought a philosophy of life to the story and it was completely original and it was hers it was signature so i'm always looking for somebody's voice to see some what is your voice what do you what inspires you as a writer. So I'm not interested in in reading a Hannibal spec as much as I'm interested in reading what is the show that you want to watch. Like I, I wrote Dead Like Me on spec to get a job on other shows because I thought like I would rather you know know what I know in terms of the feelings that I have for the characters as opposed to trying to interpret somebody else's ideas of their characters, which you'll never get. And they'll always think that it's bad because they're like, this guy clearly doesn't know the show. And so I'm interested in, in a writer's unique vision for what is the show that they want to watch and they want to see. Because then I know if I want to be in a room with them, if, I, if we speak the same language and have kind of the same entertainment tastes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with the example of Kath, I, I just like, I want to be in the room with this lady. Works so far. Um, let's let's go back uh, and talk about growing up with these uh, many siblings. Yes. Um, <laughs> and you're the youngest of five. Youngest of five. Yes. That's wild. Yes. Uh, where did you grow up? And were you? What was the stuff that you were kind of inputting? Uh, what were the entertainments? What were you reading? What were you watching? That was you know, that stuff maybe you recognize now as being fuel for what you're putting out. Um, well, I was I was. Obsessed with horror movies. I loved horror movies, and I, I, you know, I read you know Stephen King and Clive Barker and horror movie novelizations, which I, you know, love, and and were always kind of like I didn't know Annie Brackett was thinking that. Uh, so you know, those things are always like really satisfying, and um, but it was it, I was very much horror oriented and. It wasn't until film school where uh, a teacher was just like, why do you do all this horror stuff when you actually seem to be kind of funny and, and, and light? And, and I was like, oh, you know, I should combine those two things in some way because I think there is a lot of humor in the horror genre because when life gets that absurd or that high stakes, you, you need some relief. And what were some of those horror films specifically that you were I, responding? I love the original Friday the Thirteenth, and you know, up through four, and then <laughs> six is good. <laughs> Ten is super campy. I I I despised the remake because I thought you missed the point. They're like the story was about good kids that you liked, mm-hmm. and you had Kevin Bacon. Who doesn't like Kevin Bacon? <laughs> and and so what they did is they turned all the kids into assholes, and so you're like, just kill them. Like, I, don't, I don't care. 
You didn't have anybody doing movie impressions in the mirror before they got an axe in their face or anything like that. So I loved all of that stuff. And and I like that characters are likable. Like there's a I think the horror movies of the late seventies and the early eighties, the characters were all likable. And now we've gotten to a bad rut of of unlikable characters in horror movies where it just it's not effective i don't you know i don't care i want to like these people You're just ticking off the boxes yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was also a time that late 70s early 80s when you know horror movies and really most adventure movies the kids were all very real yes. uh you know and i think that that must have been part of it it wasn't just that they were likable it was this feels very grounded well there was an accessibility and you know where i grew up was very not necessarily Twin Peaksy because it was a little more inland and Where was it? more Idaho. Uh, it was like Eastern Washington, Western Idaho. But there were some Twin Peaksy things that happened when I grew up that were also sort of influential. Like the the Green River Killer, there was a couple of murders in my hometown of, of you know local girls who were horribly murdered, and we would ride our bikes out to where the bodies were ditched and look for the blood stains and that sort of thing because, you know, and we were... This is what you do when you grow up in a small town. Like being 10 or 11 and you're like, this is... Because it's all high stakes and, you know, when you're living in a small town and you're sort of like bored with your life and you see the Terminator when you're 13 or 14 and you go like, I wish somebody was trying to kill me. (laughs) Why is everything so boring? Do you remember... Do you remember becoming aware of the creation process in these things, becoming aware that somebody wrote this and maybe that's something that I could do too? It was, yes, it was, it was actually not until much, much later. Um, there, cause I was always thinking like adapting, how do you adapt something? And I was obsessed with Interview with the Vampire. Uh, like when I was, and, and actually I was talking to Christopher Rice recently and I was like, I have a story to share about your mother. <laughs> Um, because when I was 13, I had read it, and I was like, I want to adapt this as the movie. I want to write the screenplay for Interview with the Vampire, and read in the back of the book, you know, she's married to Stan Rice, and she lives in San Francisco, so it was called San Francisco Information. And I was like, Stan Rice, please? And they're like, it's four. They gave me the number, and I called. She answered, and I was like, could I speak to Ann Rice, please? And she's like, speaking. And I was like, hi. Uh, so... I held her hostage on the phone for like 45 minutes, <laughs> drilling her about writing. And I was like, where did you base this on? She's like, I made it up. And it was like, but this thing over here, yeah, you just make it up. You just like, you make it up, just make it up, pull it out of your ass, make it up. And so she very unwisely, I was like, I want to, I want to, and she could probably tell that I was a young man because I probably sounded like a young girl at that age. <laughs> And so I was like, well, how do I get in on this writing for the Interview with the Vampire movie process? And she was like, well, Julia Phillips has the rights to it. Here's her number. (laughs) So my parents were freaking out about the phone bill because I was all of these calls to California. And uh, so I tracked down, I called Julia Phillips. It was her office. And then I was like, yes, I need to get a hold of her. And do you have a number for her? And, and you know, it went round and round. And somebody gave me her home number. So and, you 
little kid. Yeah, they were like, what? I'm harmless. Uh, in her bushes. Um, and so I, call, I, I kept on leaving messages for her every day at home. Like this for, is the way to do it, you guys. Yeah. Absolutely. Or not. Um, and finally she like picked up exasperated and she was like hello like as like the middle of my message and I was like hi I want to like you know write this movie for you and she was like okay I'm going to give you my work number and you can call me but I'm only going to give it to you if you promise never to call this number again and she did and I, I did and she was very like all these people were very very nice and it was it was it was actually kind of wonderful that they were so kind about it, because not everybody would be. Um, so what was that conversation like? Yeah, I mean, she, I assume you finally talked to her yes. at length. And she was like, go to school, <laughs> learn how to write. Like, you don't just get to, like, decide you're going to be a writer and then get to get a script. Uh, so she was just very generous and, and actually real. Like, she was sort of real. She wasn't, like, you know, nurturing in any way. She was kind of, like, hard about it, but not mean in any way, shape, or form. And after I had moved down to Los Angeles and was working on Star Trek, I ran into her outside of a, a theater a play at the Zephyr Theater on Melrose. And I walked up to her, and I was like, hi, you know... You may or may not remember this, but about 10 years ago, you know, actually like 13 or 14 years ago, I called you repeatedly and she was like, oh, I remember. I'm very aware. And, And I was like, I'm a writer now. I'm writing on Star Trek. And she was like, good for you. I'm glad that you pursued it. And she was so sweet. And then she died like a year later. And so it was, it was a really neat experience as somebody who really wanted to be a writer and to have people who didn't have to do anything, like could have easily shut me down, but just chose to be human and, and generous with their time. And so it was, it was really cool. It was really sweet. And that must have made it very real for you, too, that this is a thing that I can do. I've talked to these two people who are doing it in different, in different ways, but who are doing it. Um, so was that the goal from there out? Were you like... Were you on it and said, I'm going to write movies or TV or whatever? Well, you know, I went to film school. Then I was like, okay, I'm going to be a director. And then I got into film school, and I did that. And I was like, I don't know if that's, you know, is that me? You know, there's... So I I started... I didn't really think of myself as being a writer because I had, you know, several people tell me, like, you should write, you should write, you should write. I had psychics tell me, like, you're going to be a writer. I was like, no, it's too much work. I don't, like, no. Like, like, you're like, I'll just direct. I'll interpret. I, like, want to have to generate the idea. Let me uh, ask you, what was your relationship to writing as, like, a teenager and young adult? Were you writing fiction? Were you, you know, figuring out the nuts and bolts of screenwriting? What did it look like for you? Reading. Mm-hmm. It was just reading. I wasn't, because I was such a voracious reader, and I would... Uh, Summers were spent, like, my parents were so worried about me because I, they were trying to encourage me to play with my friends. Or not play, like, actually to find friends. <laughs> um, and they wanted me to play with my older brother, who's, like, two years older than me. And we're so diametrically opposite to each other. And the irony is, because I think they were like, you know, we need just some male influences on Brian because he... <laughs> 
he's coveting his sister's dolls. <laughs> and so the irony was to, like, and I, I, I debate on telling my mother this just to sort of see what she would react. They made me go play with my brother and his friends, and they would have circle jerks. And I was like, this is, this is not the idea that, like, this is the opposite of what you want. So just let me read. Just let me read, and I'll be fine. So... And they're all straight. Uh, was was film school? Um, you want to watch the teaser again? <laughs> uh, was film school what you expected? Um, no. No, it was, you know, you sort of expect it to be this magical thing that you're going to walk out with a little film and they're going to hire you and it's going to be great. Um, I put myself through college, so I was working three jobs. And so I really didn't actually get as much out of film school as I could have if I were more focused on it as opposed to, like, eating and paying (laughs) rent and things like that. So um, I learned a lot. I made some good friends, but uh, I think... Oftentimes, the money that you spend at that can be, you know, it's tricky with financial aid because you're getting financial aid to go to school and they get the money, you don't get the money. So, but if I had access to that volume of money, I would have figured out how to make a movie, you know, and gone to like LACC and paid much less than USC. Actually created a thing, which then especially was way more expensive than it is now, too. Right. It's ridiculous. I mean, it was, it's ridiculous. So um, I think if you're going to go to film school, it's not necessarily about the label of USC or NYU. If you can find a local CC that has an affordable film program, you're going to learn just as much. And you're going to be able to like put your money toward a film that you can make as opposed to toward the school that is just going to take the money and get wealthier. Uh, and how did the how did the entry to Hollywood begin? Uh, so you you I assume you moved out here after school, and had well, no, here no prospects. School. Oh, okay. Yeah, but still um, no prospects. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Came out of it no prospects, <laughs> yeah. as any of us would. Yeah. Um, did you have a sample scripts? What were you What were you trying to do? Um, you know, I was trying to figure it out. You know, I went to, like, I took Groundlings courses because I wanted to learn about writing. And I was like, you know, should I be an actor? And then I was like, no, because I just wanted to tell stories. I knew I wanted to tell stories, and I didn't know exactly what the venue I needed to take, whether it was writing, directing, or acting in terms of, you know, and I think anybody who's attracted to the entertainment field, you're attracted to storytelling. You're attracted to, like, what excites us about sharing stories, which is, you know, as old as man itself. And so the the idea of becoming a writer was, I was so resistant to it because I think I knew intrinsically that it was going to be crippling work. And uh, it wasn't until, and I was a huge Star Trek fan, still am, and I was watching Deep Space Nine, and as I was watching it, I was just like, Oh, that's how they tell stories. That's how they tell the structure. And it was it was like seeing the code in the Matrix for the first... Because I, <laughs> I had never really sat and thought about how to structure a story, how to craft character. And 
Um, was it just the, the confluence of what you were doing and seeing this episode that, that made it click, or was there something specific to this story? Well, I had to learn everything I had learned about what I wanted to do and where I was going, and it was in the middle of why I was doing Groundlings, which you know you would have to write and then perform, and before I went on stage, you know, because we'd write this stuff and then we'd have to go and and do it, I would always I'd be in the wings praying for a car to come careening off of Melrose into the I didn't care who died as long as I didn't have to go on stage to actually do it. So I was like, this isn't this isn't my route. Um, and so when I was watching Deep Space Nine, there was some I was I was I think it's one of the, the best incarnations of Star Trek, and I, and I have uh, affection for all of them, but Deep Space Nine has a very special heart because I think they, they were primarily character-based more than, than any of the other shows, and I think Next Generation at its peak was some of the best television that has ever been. Um, but Deep Space Nine spoke to me on a more intimate level, and I, 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 I'm not sure what it was, but I just understood the math of storytelling because storytelling is mathematics. Like you are, you have to build and you have to, uh, you know, subtract and divide, and add, you know, there's all sorts of, of math to to telling a story, and it just clicked. And so I sat down and wrote a spec script. On, which at that time, Star Trek had an open script submission policy. Um, and so I sat down and I wrote a spec script and I submitted it. And then I got invited into pitch and they bought the story from the spec script. And I, I had an in and so I just kept on trying to book pitch meetings and to pitch. And I would pitch, I would write little paragraphs with one sentence like, you know, this is the, the TV Guide log line and then like a half a page, no more and pitch that, and I would tell the security guard, this was before 9-11, so you could get onto lots much easier. I was like, I'm a courier. And then I would go and just slip ideas under the doors of executives at Star Trek. And it would be after hours, and I'd be standing in their offices going, they don't know I'm here. I could take the scripts. I could take their baseball collection. I could do so many violations, and they would never know. But I didn't. But it was sort of like, there was this weird, like, God, they let me on the lot. And so... Your, your weird boldness pays off again. <laughs> it was tenacity goes a long way. And so it, it finally paid off because they were like, this guy's an idea machine. He just keeps on coming up with all these ideas. So let's, you know... So they bought one of my ideas. And usually you don't get invited into the room to break the story. But I, it was my second one. And I was like, I really... Like, please let me in, please let me in, please let me in, and, and sneaking in and sliding notes and, and all of that stuff. And they let me into the writer's room, and it was Ira Bear who was like, okay, we'll give this guy a chance, and he can be in the writer's room. And it was interesting to be in a writer's room for the very first time, and, and what was great about the Deep Space Nine writer's room is that they were all fans of Star Trek, and it was it, you were with people who loved the program, whereas on Voyager there was sort of a an attitude of, you know, it's Star Trek, and well, you know, it's, and I was just like, what are you talking about? You're lucky to be here. Um, so... Deep Space Nine were the fans, and then Voyager was a little bit of like, you know, we're better than this. And I was like, no, you're not. Uh, <laughs> like, none of us are. And it must have been eye-opening being in a writer's room at all for that first time. It was surreal. Uh, what I learned is, you know, we, when you're 
you have to listen to other people's ideas because oftentimes when you're in a writer's room, you're so busy trying to figure out your own idea that, and this happens all the time, where you're like, what about this idea? And they're like, I just pitched that two minutes ago when you weren't listening. And I was like, oh. So I learned that lesson. But I also learned the idea of, you know, I, I just, I had a, a production awareness to the show, or just like how to, you know, from film school, I knew, you know, all the, the elements that go into it. So when I was like, okay, we're going to this other space station, uh, and, you know, do you guys have access to the spacesuits that were used in, in the last Star Trek movie? And they were like, yes. And I was like, well, why don't you put them in the spacesuit and then we can see this thing where they're coming in? And they were like, oh, that's a good idea. And that, that was the first time that they registered the idea. And I was like, oh, this is going to work out. This is going to work out. They, this is going to work out. And it was such a glorious feeling to just be listened to and then have somebody sort of go, oh, like you sort of understand production and you understand storytelling and like we don't have to spend $25,000 to build a spacesuit because we can just get it from the movie. Uh, was this the beginning of momentum for you then? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so how did it start to unroll after that? And then how long was it until selling your own work? Um, I had been... On, so I did... I sold two stories to Deep Space Nine and then based on that I was given a script for, for Voyager to write and then... Um, you know, when you're a junior writer, you're rewritten heavily. And I was rewritten heavily on Star Trek, and it was always crushing because you want to be, you know, part of the team and an important player. Um, and sometimes when you're a junior writer, the important thing is just to have ideas that, that feed those who have more experience. Were you made aware that the that was the expectation for no. you? No, no, it was, and it, it was, was like, really oh hard. my god, you fucked that script up! Like it was just, ooh. Uh, so there was always like, oh my god, I'm never going to write again, and you know, but you know, there are always those people. Just turn to people in your life that can support you because they will like they will support you and buoy you through it. And there was an assistant on Deep Space Nine where there was one night where I was like, I, I can't write the scene. I don't know. I, I, I can't write, and and she was like what's the first point? And just, like, held my hand through it. And it was, it was and I said, be nice to all of the assistants, like, because you'll be working for them one day. And uh, so it was great to have that ally when I was in the depths of despair and going, like, I'm going to blow it. And, and she was just generous with her time and, and, you know, held my hand through it in a way that the, the other more senior writers couldn't or probably wouldn't be interested in. And so that was, that was you know, another example of someone's kindness that gets you through a dark spot and, and then you survive it and you learn, I can survive. Yeah. And there's something too, I mean, just process-wise to airing this stuff out, to saying it out loud and having someone ask, what's the first point? You have to come up with the answer. Yes. Uh, yeah. That kind of pushes you forward. And sometimes it's as simple as if somebody asks it, then your brain sort of, clicks in of what you need to do, but if you're in a vacuum, you don't know to ask and you don't know what to answer, and it's just terrifying. Um, what, do you, what do you do now when you're at that point? Do you even get to that point anymore, oh, or is all it just rolling? All the time. You know, every time it's like looking at the blank page, and then, then it's like looking for inspiration, going scouring the, for inspiration, whether it's in... You know, science magazines, or you know, looking through you know the internet and just like googling, you know, the facade. You know, I'll be writing a scene on on Hannibal, and I'll just like I don't know what this scene is about, and I'll just Google 
psychopath philosophy and just see what comes up and then start like looking and go like there's an idea I can build a scene around so it's not you never like you're you know you ideas are everywhere and you just have to when you find them you have to make them your own you can't plagiarize but you you it, that's that's how storytelling works um, so then how long uh, until you sold your own show uh, I had been on Voyager for four seasons and you know, Voyager was an interesting job because it was you know there was there was this fraternity uh, at Star Trek that was a very interesting experience, and I'm not you know sort of that my mind doesn't work well in those situations, and and so I was always I was always a little little uh, jealous that I didn't get the because there was a job on Deep Space Nine and there was a job on Voyager. I was like, please God, let me get the, the Deep Space Nine job, and I got the Voyager job which was a, a slightly less supportive community than Deep Space Nine was. So it all, there, was, there was an installation of fear. And so, and there was also, you know, the show is what the show is. And on Deep Space Nine, Ira Bear was, was a very visionary showrunner. So when the executive producer, Rick Berman, would be like, I don't like that idea, he'd be like, I don't care. <laughs> this is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing it. We're on Voyager. We had so many great ideas for that show that were thrown out. And then it was just sort of like, okay, it's fait accompli. It's, the idea is dead. And I was like, Ira would have fought for that shit. Um, so on, on Voyager, toward the end, I was getting a little frustrated with how non-human everybody was. Because I'm like, they're, they're facing the Borg. They're going to be sitting in their own stool. Like it's there's there's there is no kind of reality to the human emotion of it, and that grew very frustrating for me because I didn't know how to write it. I didn't know how to write just purely technologically or informationally, and so I was like, "What's a show that I want to watch?" And I was obsessed with On a Pale Horse, the Piers Anthony book, and it was one of my favorite books from my childhood. And I was like, "I want to do." my version of On a Pale Horse. And so then I started working on Dead Like Me and was writing it my last year of, of Voyager. And uh, I had asked my agent at the time, I was like, well, should I write an angel spec? Or, and he's like, write something original. What, do you have any original ideas? And I was like, yeah, I have you know, these three. And he's like, do that one, I can sell it. And I wrote it and he sold it. Uh, can you tell us about putting that pilot story together for Dead Like Me. I mean, presumably you hadn't written a pilot before. Uh, so how did you even go about it? How did you figure out these characters and figure out the tone as well? Because there weren't a lot of things that had this sort of darkness and humor and horror uh, on TV at the time. Well, I, you know, once again, I think, you know, we get inspiration everywhere. And I had just seen um, Fight Club. And I was, I which is one of my favorite movies. I think it's brilliant storytelling. And I, you know, so I, I was attracted to the voiceover. And I was like, how to, to have somebody who's going to be a grim reaper have that sort of narration. So I was attracted to the voiceover on one level. So I, I knew that it was going to be voiceover. And then it was just about what are the images. And I just thought, you know, if you're a grim reaper, you're sort of like falling to earth. And so I had this shot of, of falling to earth. And then I thought, how is she going to die? What's a fun way for this character to die? <laughs> and, you know, Mirror was going to be deorbited soon. I was like, wouldn't it be hysterical if she's killed by a toilet seat from Mirror? <laughs> and then that kind of, it was, it was 
the only time I've ever really written without an outline. I didn't. I had no idea where it was going. I just sort of put one foot in front of the other, and I didn't know what the next scene was ever. When I was writing a scene, I like when I finished it, I was like, where would the story go now if this just happened? So that's a luxury that I, I haven't had since. Um, but it was it was actually a very organic writing process, just to sit and write it and not sort of think about where it's going and then just find it from, you know, brick by brick by brick. So it was it was kind of teaching myself how to write a pilot. And um, Do you remember discovering things about the story as you went that changed the course of it? Absolutely. Like what? Um, finding things with relationships with, you know, I, I'm the youngest of five and... I was so fascinated with my sister's relationship with my mother, and which were two totally different things. So I was, I was fascinated with you know the the daughters and the relationship with the mother, who was played brilliantly by Cynthia Stevenson. And so that when it, when I wrote the scenes with the mom, and I started putting chunks of my life in, so it was like it became a Horcrux. Because I was like breaking off pieces of my soul and putting it in, and I was like, "Oh, that's what we're supposed to do as writers. You're supposed to digest your living experience and find a way to process it and put it on the page because there is honesty and reality in it." And that was a big epiphany for me because I was like, "Oh, I just have to write honestly. I just have to write the truth or find a truth that is relatable." And that was that's why I put like. You know the the Frankenfruity and, and the Frankenberry because I was obsessed with the monster cereals. Of course, um, they're fruity and they're delicious. So it was uh, it was just finding those chunks of your own life to put in everything because then it's almost like a, a gauge where you will be able to know what that character would do in any given situation because a piece of you is in it. And it's it's I think that's very important. Like even if it's a villain, there's got to be a piece of you in it. Like they're pieces of, of me and, and Hannibal and I have no designs on eating people but I would rather eat a person than a dog exactly. the weirdest applause break there ever was we're going to pull that out and put it at the top of every podcast um, I want to make sure we have time for questions uh, from you guys. I have a couple more, but if you want to start uh, making a lot of noise and lining up at this white pole, um, just as long as you're still paying attention to us, that's fine. Um, uh, we've seen the same, uh, many of the same uh, actors pop up in your works, um, which is always a treat, and they're great. Uh, tell us about collaborating with some of these actors and, and you know, why, why revisit the ones that we do see again and again. Um, well, I think there's a... When somebody gets the cadence of your dialogue, the, you know, I, I wrote Pushing Daisies for Lee Pace because he cracked me up on Wonderfalls. Like, he, like, and he elevated the dialogue that I wrote that was sort of, like, rambly and uh, full of, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies and alliterisms and, and those types of things that, that I was like, oh... I can picture him in the role. So oftentimes it's about, like, it's easier to picture them because you, you've worked with them so you know them as an instrument. And so that there's that aspect. And it's also just, I love actors. And I think they're, that, which is not a common thing with writers. Like, most, I know a lot of writers who loathe actors <laughs> because they generally get the credit for the writing because, you know, 
that's most of America just assumes that they're capturing the moments that is completely improvised. Um, but that's when actors are brilliant because they elevate and they are your they are your backup team and they will they will make things work. Like if you have to let the script go because it's going to film, and then you see it brought to life and you're like, oh, that doesn't suck nearly as hard as I thought it was going to. So there are allies and our assets. So I, I love actors and and I love the way actors think. And that's what's so kind of great about um, on Hannibal, like Hugh Dance and I collaborate quite a bit because he'll call and say like, what's, like, where's this coming from? And I was like, well, it's, it's this, this, and this. And he's like, oh my God, because I would be thinking this. And I was like, yes, you would be thinking that. Exactly, that's what you would be thinking. So... It's a great partnership. Yeah, uh, and and let me ask you this: uh, it's this is sort of a question about Wonder Falls because we we haven't gotten to talk about it very much, uh, but it's really about you know your work as a whole. Are you a writer who is aware of? Uh, I guess who is self-aware? You know, you know the things that interest you that pop up in in thematically in different shows or in characters. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think there's there, and once again, it's that thing where you want to put things that you love and make you happy, and and you see, and you are reflecting parts of yourself in in your work because it actually it becomes a signature. Like you, you know, you want to do something that is uniquely you, um, or has your point of view in it. And part of like you know, with writing, you know, often in television you are interpreting somebody else's work and you're, you're, you're mimicking somebody else's style, uh, but you still have to find how you make it unique to yourself because if it's your name on the script, you have to earn it. All right, let's get to some questions. Uh, I have more, so yours better be better than mine. <laughs> uh, please keep them brief. We've got a bunch. Uh, after an initial draft, besides the importance of getting feedback from others, what do you uh, find going into a second draft? What's your self-editing process like, and what do you find that you move around more than other things, that different aspects? Well, I think you, you hit it on the head with just the word self-editing. Like, you can write really long, and you're just like, do I need this? Is this, like, one of the notes that I give writers quite frequently is, this is an online, like, like it's because I'll I'll say you know give me a two page scene because that will have like a beginning a middle and an end if you give me just a one page scene then you're not going to be able to get an idea in there that is new or fresh and sometimes I'll write a three page scene it's like taking out the fat like just like you know separate the wheat from the chaff and and make it uh, like editing yourself is so that was is a very important skill to like cut things down that you don't need to tell the story so it can be as concise as possible and also sometimes you have the right idea and the right dialogue it's in the wrong place in the script and it's in the wrong order so there'll be something where you can shift things around. Just recently in, in working on a, a script in Hannibal, there was this great speech that I loved that was about, that, that another writer you know, had, had written in the draft about cowbirds and, and, and how they, they essentially sneak their eggs into other birds' nests. And I was just like, this is such a great speech. And I was like, but it doesn't kind of make sense where it is, so I cut it. And then as I was reading the script, I was like, oh, it goes here. Like, this is, like, this is great because it goes... It's, it was just the right idea in the wrong place, and sometimes that's a good thing to recognize because you get attached to ideas, and you're like, but I know it's a good idea. I know it works. Uh, but it's just in the wrong place in the script. 
Um, with like, hello. Um, with like, I, you do a lot of high concept stuff. So like, with that, at what point do you like have an idea? Like, oh, he touches people and brings them back to life, and then, but it's in space. Like, at what point do you go? Wait, that's too much. Or do you? Or do you just try to make those ideas work? Um, you know, sometimes it's it, it's there's there's a, a rule of like you get one buy in a story. So the space would be two buys. And although I would argue that it worked with Jason X, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's there's a way to you know. Once again, it's 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 about self censoring and self editing, where you're like, okay, this idea is enough. And sometimes it's it's you're able to explore things um, more philosophically if you just explore the one idea more thoroughly, as opposed to jamming a bunch of ideas in there. And and you know, I got that note recently on a. Uh, a feature script that I wrote, and they were like, there's too many ideas. And then I read the script again, and I was like, God, there's too many ideas. I need to, like, run a comb through this and, and, and get some of that stuff out because it'll allow me to let things breathe and find more human moments to explore, which is really what we're looking for whenever we watch anything, is to find some sort of human connection to what is happening on the screen. Um, so we touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering when you had ideas, and do you ever direct things towards a network in your head? Like, oh, you know, this would this be, be good for... This would be great for CBS? Yeah, FX. Or, <laughs> yeah, that one. Um, no. No, because it's sort of like, what you know, once again, that way madness lies. You have to find what you love about the idea, write it for yourself first, and then it has to find a home. If you're trying to craft something for a specific audience, you're going to deny yourself the truth that you need to write as a writer that gets it out of your soul. So you can't anticipate that you've got to be the first member of the audience. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to write it for yourself and what you want to see and then get the feedback to, if, if you shape it to an, a, a network later, do that later, like after you, you know what it is and what you want to say because... It's just it's 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 blocking your mojo. I love your shirt. Thanks, you gave it to me. <laughs> That's why I love it. <laughs> I was wondering why you decided to change some of the genders of the characters from the book series, the series Hannibal. I'm really glad you did, and I was just wondering for Freddie and for Alana why you did that. Because uh, I think it would be a sausage party without it. Like, you know, and it's like there's there's no fun in, in that. I mean, there's... I love women, and I love writing female characters because I think there's a greater expression. You know, I think... And it's also, you know, because of various societal kind of fucked up things where it's like it's easier to see a woman express things than it is for a guy... But that's sort of labels and, and nonsense anyway. But I just, I think there, there are differences in gender and there are differences in individuals and there's, there's no right or wrong or interpretations. It's, it's just, you have to be honest to a character first. And like, I, I don't really think about, I'm not sitting down and going like Alana Bloom thinks this because she's a woman. I'm thinking Alana Bloom thinks this because she's smart and she's educated and she has a point of view of the world. Her genitals happen to be on the inside. 
but that's it's like gender is almost secondary. That's why I was, you know, in the stuff that I did very early on, you know, I named female characters with male names because I was like, we're living in a sort of, I think gender identity is a, is a huge complicated thing. And if we just removed that and looked at the individual, I think we'd all be happier. I, I will say after uh, fromage, sausage party was probably the best Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess also in regards to Hannibal, I was really excited as a person of color to see that you took canon characters and made them characters of color like Beverly and Jack. And I was wondering if we're going to see more of that in the next couple seasons of Hannibal. We, you know, the the idea for the third season is uh, would be much more inclusive of that. And I think we were always looking for the best actor for the role. And I see that first because Beverly Katz is, you know, you would think that she's going to be Jewish and, you know, Katz is a Jewish name and, and you know, there are Asian Jews, but it's not the first thing that you think of when you think of a, a Jewish person. But Hetian Park was the best actress for the job. So it really wasn't about ethnicity. It was about, once again, who's the best person for the role. And the, the first episode of, of Hannibal, the first two episodes, there is a... Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, there's a killer who is picking people by the tone of their skin. And, you know, I think oftentimes we can't stop and appreciate the aesthetic of somebody's skin color because it becomes a racial issue and then it gets complicated. Like, the first I, I saw... Um, uh, God, I'm blanking on his name. Um, comedian who died... Uh, Bernie Mac. Um, and I saw him at the Wonderfalls upfronts, and he walked in, in the room, and his skin was so beautiful. It was poreless and gorgeous in, like, the most beautiful shade of, of brown, but I couldn't say that because then it becomes, like, a racial thing, but to be able to look at somebody and say, like, you have beautiful skin is now we can't do that because it becomes about race as opposed to aesthetic, and I think that's unfortunate that we've politicized what we look at to such an extent that it's not safe to tell somebody they're attractive based on color, which I think is sad. So we actually made an episode about that. It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about that because it feels to me like the way that... Um, Theories are explained on Hannibal. That is, you know, concepts are turned over and taken apart. Uh, when you're approaching a script, and we've talked about this a little bit already, but, you know, how do you find that balance between theory, theme, and character? Because the show is also a tremendous character study. Uh, you, hopefully you're, you're hitting all of those notes simultaneously. And um, I think the best stories sort of serve metaphor and character and theme and philosophy because we we talk about theme a lot in the writer's room it's like what is the theme of this episode is the theme trust is the theme you know manipulation is the theme um you know religion like what is the theme and trying to carry that through because it helps us as storytellers to focus the story so you're not kitchen sinking it and throwing in like all of these ideas because you're like is that idea related to the theme is the theme coming out in this scene and it really is a structural focusing technique that i think is 
is useful for me as a writer because I understand when I'm looking for inspiration in a scene or looking for a new idea in a scene, I know it has to tie back to the theme in some way. Otherwise, I'm, there's no point in having a theme. But there's also, I mean, you guys have been amazingly successful in not just making the characters mouthpieces for perspectives on theme. Uh, so there has to be the conversation, I would imagine, that is, how does Hannibal see this concept or how does will see this concept well that's you know there you know i love writing the speeches with where hannibal is is saying things unexpectedly where he's he's talking about you know cruelty being something that is unique to man and cruelty doesn't exist in the animal world so that's why if when he does eat animals he goes to an ethical butcher and but yet man is cruel so it doesn't deserve the same you know graces that you would give an animal who is trying to either survive or thrive and they have a different agenda so you know I love when we get into that stuff because as an animal lover I love that he's eating people on on, <laughs> on some level because I think there's we often don't think about what we put in our bodies and, and I think there's something uh, interesting about you know I just got recently why people say grace because I was you know I was raised Catholic so I was inclined to not be religious and <laughs> but we got a new pope and he's great um, so you know the the I, I, I just realized that oh by saying grace you are actually grateful for the animal and you know honoring it in some way even though you know it because I think what you eat is your choice but um, it actually kind of made, made sense to me in a, in a sort of an epiphany moment where I was like, oh, it's a thank you to the animal. I can't wait. Episode four. A bigger right? thank you is not to eat it. But. <laughs> hey, Brian. Um, I was wondering um, what the status of the Pushing Daisies back nine is. You know, we had, after Wildstorm went under, um, it disappeared. Is it going to come out in any kind of way? You know, there have been quite a few conversations recently about Pushing Daisies and Barry Sonnenfeld, who directed the hell out of the pilot and was my creative partner on the show. Um, you know, he's, you know, we're always talking about how do we bring this, how do we do a movie, how do we uh, get financing? And so we've been talking about those types of things and also uh, a Pushing Daisies musical would be a dream of mine just because... Of course, I would love to, to do it. And Warner Brothers is very interested in doing it. It's about finding the right uh, person to write the music and you know the, the opening in my schedule and, and that sort of thing. But it is definitely something that is still near and dear to my heart. Like I, you know, I'll see it's on Chiller TV all the time, which is great. <laughs> but it is kind of, you know, it's it's a twinge of sadness because it was such a, a, a special experience. Um, creatively that writing staff was amazing. We had so much fun and so I miss, I miss it terribly. So I would, I would love to find a way to live it again. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Um, so as a showrunner, you always have like a lot of minutia that you never, probably never get to put in the script. So I'm wondering stuff like, do you know stuff like the names of all of Will's dogs, any, any other minutia like that? Do you always have that? And like, are you going to try and find a way to put some of that in there? Or? Well, there, you know, the, the dogs like have varying sort of names for, you know, they, they, I kind of call them by what their real names are. 
and uh, but there was there was someone on Twitter who like uh, applesauce. They were the, Rebecca on Twitter like had, had had tweeted me and was like you know name a dog applesauce. So I put it into a script, and I was like because I was you know it's that's the great thing about the the Twitter community and the Bannable community is that everybody is appreciative of the you know in, in counter to the the tone of the show which is very dark everyone is actually relatively sunshine, rainbows, and ponies. Which I think is wonderful because that's where I want to live. And so actually the, the fanable community is a great relief to the, the darkness of the show for me. Uh, let's talk about the relationship with fans for a minute. I mean, each of your shows has had these really very invested fan bases. Um, and a question often comes up on these panels about what is the relationship between the writers and the fans? How much is listened to? How much is taken into account? How much do you think of that audience? Um, I think there's, there's a, uh, a difference between respecting and pandering. And I think, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, there are things that we as storytellers know that we have to do in terms of, like, whether it's killing a character and you're thinking, like, God damn you for killing that character... But I go to, you know, every time I see Hedwig take a bullet for Harry Potter, like, I, like, I tear up. And I think it's like, the, it's the, you know, animal affection. And I think, like, God damn you, J.K. Rowling, for killing that bird. But then I think, you know, it teaches us a lesson about love and loss. And, you know, like, nobody wants death. And yet, you know, it's a fact of life. So, so with those instances, you know, y- you, you sort of have to look at a, a bigger picture and, and like hear, hear the, the things that they get excited about and the things that they're concerned about and know when that you can give them what they want and when you have to give them what they need. Mm-hmm. Do you feel an emotional connection with the characters? And if so, how do you feel when you have to kill them? Um... Uh, absolutely you feel an emotional connection because if they're not real to you in in some way it's hard to make them real for somebody else and you know there's there uh, is a a couple of characters you know three characters in this new season meet terrible terrible fates and uh, I cried during during one of them you know when I was writing it because I was just like oh I'm going to miss this actor I'm going to miss this character on the show and also you're feeling the emotion of the other characters that are you're like you're breaking it to them you know and it's like the, there's an episode episode 5 that has uh you know the first act is primarily there's a little bit of voiceover um detailing the the character's death but it's primarily just images of people reacting because I was like, I don't know how to write that scene over and over again. And, and when we experience grief, it's not articulated in words. It's articulated in impressions and feelings. So it was, the choice was very uh, important to make it visual and cinematic and emotional as opposed to burdened with words and absolutely you know it's it's i like i cry for characters that don't die like because i'm sort of like oh poor will graham jesus christ like somebody help him out (laughs) 
So you've been really frank about the differences between the different Star Trek shows and what you liked and didn't like about them. I was wondering, if someone handed you the keys to your own Star Trek TV show, what would you do with it? Who would it be about? I would drop everything. Um, I, I love Hannibal, but uh, I, would, like, I, would, I would be beaming aboard. Um, you know, I think there's... there. You know, And I had said in an interview, like, I... You know, we had... Uh, you know, we had Cisco, and then we had Janeway, and then I think we need Angela Bassett in the captain's uh, chair, or somebody along those, uh, along that road, because I think, you know, it's actually, if Hillary Clinton gets elected as president in 2012, we're totally following the model of Star Trek. It's all, like, you had to have Cisco, and then you got Janeway. So, like, hopefully we're on that track. Um, but I think it's it's you know finding the finding a philosophy about it, and I think there is such an interesting philosophy happening now with our identity as a planet, and taking responsibility for what's happening on the planet. And I think there's there are I would make it about identity, in in a specific way. Thanks. Thanks. You just sold me on a Star Trek show. <laughs> I would actually watch. Talk that. to CBS. <laughs> Um, I guess my only question is just kind of like, you know, like with self-confidence as being a writer, like what, would, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who kind of, I guess, discovered the passion, they feel like a little bit late and they're kind of trying to get into it and you're kind of worried, like, am I too old to start doing this? No, <laughs> no, you're, you're never too old. Like there's, I didn't sell my first thing as a writer until I was 27, which is, you know, that's still really young. Um, in my ripe old age, uh, but I think if you have a passion for it, there like age is not an issue. Like so many writers, like, the good thing is, you know, if you were an actor, it's a different it's a different thing because. But then you look at Kevin Costner, who didn't start acting until he was in his late thirties, and he started by playing a corpse, and then, you know, everything took off from there. So, we have the beauty of. Of nobody needs to see us and nobody needs to hear us. They just need to feel our writing. So if you have a passion for writing, start writing. You know, com- that's, it's great advice, and he's right. Um, <laughs> the confidence question does come up a lot on these panels. I mean, writers seem to be, by nature, not terribly confident. <laughs> Maybe a little self-loathing. Um, are, you, are you confident about the work that you put out into the world? Um... I'm confident in that I have done my very best. And yet, you know, I still wonder, like we, you know, with the, today we did the, the TCAs for, for Hannibal, and it was the first time anybody had seen the first two episodes. And so the first episode is really like episode 14 of the first season that kind of like hands the baton over to the second episode, which sort of starts to fit a rhythm. And I was so worried because you know you, you fight these fights and you defend your child and you're like ready to, to fall on swords and then you think like should I be falling on a sword is that worth falling on a sword for and then you because you just don't know just because it's working for you it doesn't necessarily mean that it's working for anybody else and so it was very gratifying today to hear people like responding very positively about the first two episodes and it was like oh we're Okay, we're like we're okay. We're like it's it's we're on a, a good trajectory because I was sort of thinking like 
I don't know about those first three episodes, but I know we hit a stride with four, five, six, seven, eight, and above. And so I was worried about the first three episodes. And then, you know, people are responding incredibly positively to them. So I was like, okay, so, you know, because you just, you worry. Like, I don't understand writers or creatives or Madonna who says that I don't have any regrets. I'm like, shit, I, like, I'm riddled. I'm riddled with regrets. So I just don't understand that mentality. Hannibal's such a, it's like a super tasteful, stylish show. Uh, I, I no always, pun. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Uh, <laughs> and I always watch it just thinking like, oh my God, I want to dress this way. I love his apartment. Like the food is so beautiful. How much of that, how much of that style and that taste is your own? And then at what, at one point, like, is the show kind of about aesthetics and beauty and like, you know, a desire for purity on Hannibal's part? Like is... Is well, there a commentary in there? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, with regard to his wardrobe, I love a three-piece plaid suit. I, I love it. I think it's, I, I think it's hot shit potatoes. I just, like, I just think it's, it's, it's sexy as all. The only thing sexier is a kilt, I think. Like, so, I, so there's stuff that I, like, you know, it's, like you, I, at a certain point you're kind of playing dress-up. You know, we're just like, how am I going to dress this doll? Um, he's going to be wearing a three-piece plaid suit. Um, and then at another point, it's like going to the root of the character who is, lives by an aesthetic. And that is almost why he kills, is those who don't appreciate the aesthetic of life and the beauty of life. And, and so, the, you know, that's how I sort of like kind of understand his mentality. Of course, you would, you would eat somebody who is a pig of a human being. Um, but there's there it, you can't do style for style's sake. But it has I I love style. I love production design. I love all of those kind of creative aspects of the show. But it's also very important for them to mean something within the philosophy. Like for pushing daisies, it was a fairy tale, so it was candy colored and bright imagery and Barry Sonnenfeld's wonderful direction. Um, and that was part of the tone of the show, whereas Hannibal is sort of darker and more sumptuous, and yet it's it's still... Like, I don't want to... Like, I, I think everything that I do has to have some sort of cinematic point of view and some sort of... When you look at it, I want you to say, like, oh, that looks like Hannibal, because, you know, they're antlers. <laughs> but, you know, same with Pushing Daisies. I, like, if you're flipping across, I want you to be able to say... I know that show from three frames. Like, you know, I can identify that show. So I think it's just part of what I love about filmmaking and storytelling is that it has to have a visual aspect of it because that's the first thing that your, you know, your rods and cones have to be as stimulated as your intellect. Uh, going off that visual question, I mean, your shows are some of the most beautifully beautiful looking shows ever on television what are the conversations you have with the directors or per people who are setting the tones like a Barry Sonnenfeld or David Slade kind of going in about what the visual style you want is well when you're you, you when you're lucky enough to work with Barry Sonnenfeld and and David Slade they they bring that too so you know a lot of it is as for instance with David Slade he, you know, I knew he was. He knows how to make a pretty picture, so that was very important. I knew Barry Sonnenfeld knew how to make a pretty picture, 
but was also you know two directors who are so completely opposite in their tones. And Barry is very funny, very ribald, and David is very serious, and he's a, you know he's a, he's a, a brooding guy. Um, so he was perfect for Hannibal because he understands how to brood and and give you a beautiful image at the same time. So. Ideally, it's a collaboration. So it's me saying, you know, like it, it needs to be beautiful, and, and these are the things that excite me about it. And it's them saying, this is how you make it beautiful in a way that is honoring their perspective because you don't want a Xerox machine. You don't want somebody who's going to do everything that you're going to say because I don't because I, I you know, it's that fear of, of like a, there's a better idea out there. And so you want directors like Barry and David who have that better idea for you, and it just takes a lot of stress off of you. And the, the doing the pilot of uh, what well, we were direct a series on Hannibal, David Slade did the, the the first episode and a couple of other episodes, but it wasn't until I saw what he did with the characters and what he did with the tone of the show and what the actors brought to the table that I threw out almost all of the scripts that we had because I was like, David elevated this far beyond what we were anticipating, and now we have to step it up. Uh, we have time for one more here. Um, not two more? Yay. No. <laughs> um, because we're all familiar with your, your successes... Oh, thank you. Um, I was wondering if, if and how often you go in to pitch an original series or your own idea as a series and... Uh, it's rejected or it doesn't work, or if you're just a rolling ball of triumph. No, no, it's, there's, there is. Uh, I wish I was that rolling ball, but um, you know, after pushing daisies, there were like there were some you know several projects that didn't get off the ground, and there was you know television, which I was very excited about, which was about home network shopping, and that sort of died on the vine. And there was another show about a no-kill animal shelter that I was very. Uh, close to my heart because I, I, do, I do love animals and that died on the vine and um, you know so there are those ideas that just don't go and it's a huge bummer and then you you sort of get perspective about like okay that one wasn't supposed to go at that time and maybe I can revisit it and make it more you know maybe there's more of me that I need to put in there and if there wasn't enough of me in there or there wasn't enough of of something in there, and it's also kind of taking the note, like because they don't work for a reason sometimes, and you know it's like that that uh, that kitchen sink script, like it's like I know why that won't sell because it's it has too many ideas in it, and I need to like clean them out and return it to an emotional stand, so it it has uh, it has an appeal. So no, it's like and there's always you know the ideas that don't go, and it's it's a bummer. Every time, every time it sucks. Do you want to talk about the monsters for one second? Sure. Uh, that was a great script. Speaking of Thank ones that got a lot, it's a great script. Um, you know what happened? Um, you know, I think it was it. You know, that was one of those that I believe really suffered from a transition of executives at NBC, and it was a really it was a it was a challenging show to make. Um, the design of it still it breaks my heart that we weren't able to go further with it because, you know, I was 
Eddie was going to be gay, and he was, you know, like, I was just sort of like, oh, this is going to be so much fun to tell a little gay werewolf story, and, and you know, there was, there was all sorts of, like, emotional things that I was, I was really excited about telling those stories and telling a family story in a way that could be subverting, like, any episode of Parenthood you could do, we could do on Mockingbird Lane, but differently. Um... So I think really with that one, it was it was a, you know, we would have executives from the network who were new trying to, like, figure out what is the show, what is our role on the show, who would come down and be very nervous about their jobs, go into hair and makeup and give notes on hair, and then an actor would show up and going, like, why does their hair all of a sudden look wiggy? And they're like, well, we got this note from the network, and it's like, okay go back and fix it. And so everybody was, was trying to, because they were spending so much money on it, everybody was so worried about screwing it up. And then it became a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and it just, like, you know, it wobbled and started wobbling harder, and, you know, then the wheels went off in terms of its momentum. Whereas Hannibal, they didn't spend very much money on it, and they pay a third of the licensing fee that they would a, a normal show, so there was a greater allowance of creativity because they weren't, they didn't have as much to lose. So I think it was, um, you know, it's still heartbreaking. It makes me just want to go to Warner Brothers and do Dark Shadows and take all my my uh, everything from my, my Mockingbird Lane ideas and repurpose them. I just wanted to say your incarnation of Hannibal is so unique, and I wanted to know. Has Thomas Harris seen the show, or if he does, he have any involvement in the creative process? I I opened that door because I I'm a huge fan of his writing, and I was like, do you want to like what do you want to do? Do you want to write an episode? Do you want to direct an episode? Like, what do you want to do? Um, and this is all through Martha De Laurentiis because he's a recluse and he doesn't <laughs> engage in anything. And so Martha was like, do you want? He's like, no. Like, I just want to be an audience member. And then she he sent her an email. On New Year's Day, it was just like, you know, the, I'm so happy with the show that I love that it's, it's sophisticated and it's beautiful and it's, you know, on all the top ten lists. And, and so that was nice to hear, but I have, I've, I've never seen him or talked to him or got a note from him. It's all through another person, so he's kind of keeping true to his, his reclusivity. Um, but it is, it, it's nice that he's, he's acknowledged that we exist. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you'd think that's where we'd end it. Before we wrap up, uh, what are you watching on television these days? Do you have time, or what movies are you loving and getting inspired by, or books, or whatever? I love The Walking Dead. I love it. I, I think it's great. Uh, I love The Walking Dead. Uh, getting On on HBO is wonderful and life-affirming and dark and funny and, and, and magical and brilliantly performed. Um, I love Bob's Burgers. It, it's fantastic. If you're not watching, you should seek it out. It's it's wonderful. Um, I love American Horror Story. I think that's, that's a ton of fun. And there, and I love how there's almost a a, a pornographer's zeal to the storytelling because <laughs> it's just they're they're so uh, rambunctious and they have such an amazing cast that they can get away with anything because you've got that cast. So um, I love those shows, but the only one that I is appointment 
viewing is Walking Dead. That's the one that I'll drop what I'm doing and watch. <laughs> and everything else I try to catch up on. Correct answers. Please give a round of applause to Brian Fuller. Thank you all. Thanks to everyone here in Nerdist Industries at Meltdown Comics. And thanks to H26LA Hannibal Season 2, February 28th. All right. That's Thank awesome. you so much for coming. Now leaving Nerdist.com.